you would, uh, if you're able, if you would stand with me, I'm going to read the word this morning. Um, we're going to be in Nehemiah uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 20. And if you have your booklet, it's on page 18. If you, at the bottom of 18 is where we'll start if you have it numbered. So. <clears throat> I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sunbalt, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Gresham, the Arab, heard about it. They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Brother Samuel. So we are continuing uh, in our series on Nehemiah. We learned two weeks ago that to be a restorer, um, a person must put first things first, which Nehemiah did. He was God-centered. We learned last week that you have to be a person of great faith, that you have to have this deep trust and dependence upon God in that relationship. And this week, what we want to talk about is we will learn that as a restorer, that we need to be strategic and wise, strategic and wise. Um, and that's what Nehemiah was. He was wise and strategic in everything that he did. I, yeah, wise and strategic in everything. And this is really crucial because he's heading to Jerusalem. It's the beginning of the project, and he needs to start on the right foot. And so I love some of the stuff we're going to see from him today and learn. So we're taking up where we left off last week. We're actually going to come back to all of two towards the end. But in verse 11, we're taken up. So where we were, King Artaxerxes has given him permission to go, and he heads off to Jerusalem. It's a thousand-mile journey by foot or by camel or by horse or by a mixture of all of that. Can you imagine heat and sand, all of the elements that they encountered, flies and fleas, that whole trip, two and a half months that it would have taken. And I love in verse 11, he simply says of his trip, despite all of that, he just says, I went to Jerusalem. Uh, I love that. Just a plain spoken fellow. 
And I want you to know, when he got to Jerusalem, I want to give you a picture of the task in front of him because it was ginormous. It was a huge task. He arrived to a city where morale was at rock bottom. The people are depressed. They're in despair. They're discouraged, disgraced, demoralized. And he comes to a city that's lying in ruins, especially its walls. And this, this is going to be a massive operation. It has lied in ruins, laid in ruins, lay in ruins. I need an English teacher because I can never get the lay lie, all those right. But it's been in ruins for 150 years. I mean, you know what happens when you leave your yard alone, your yard alone for a month, right? 150 years it's been in ruins. Um, the circuit of that wall to, go, to do the whole thing would be a mile. And the wall that they're needing to rebuild isn't the wall that I was imagining. I tend to think of maybe a wall around a house or the walls out in the Flint Hills, the stone walls. The reach four or five feet tall. I've seen some a little taller. These walls needed to be three to four feet thick at the top, five to six, five to six likely at the bottom, 12 to 15 feet high. Okay, That's a lot of work, right, for a whole mile, a lot of work. And he knows he's going to need the whole community to buy into this if it's going to happen. So back to, back to verse 11. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, okay, and let's stop for a minute. I know go, going with me through a text is almost like uh, I keep slamming on the brakes, okay? But we need to talk about this for a few minutes. Because when he first arrives, this man of action actually does nothing. He doesn't do anything. And I, I think it's so instructive because, again, he is, a, he is a man of action, and he gets things done. And I think he knew that if he would have just jumped into the task immediately, that he would have lost the people, right? He's an unknown commodity. They don't know who he is. He had no credibility with him. He had the trust of the king, but he has, doesn't have the trust of these people. Not yet. And he knows that. As I've just thought about my own life and leadership, it, it reminds me, that young leaders, I think, frequently rush headlong into things, right? We just want to get it done. I know. I've been there. I've done that. Uh, but not Nehemiah. He's really strategic and wise. He's not going to make that mistake because he knows that if you rush into initiative too fast, you can actually undermine the initiative you're wanting to do. So he knows he needs to bring the people along. So I like how he doesn't rush in, how he just takes his time. And in those three days, I'm sure, among other things, he got some rest after a long journey. Do you not also know that he probably spent time in solitude with the Lord, in prayer, seeking wisdom? Is this not his pattern? So, after this initial pause of three days, what's he do next? So, let's look at verse 12, at verse 12. I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. And then he goes through how that by night he went to all these gates. He looked at all of this. Um, and then verse 15, I went up the valley by night examining the wall. And finally I turned back and I re-entered through the valley gate. Um, here's a map of Jerusalem and that's what that path would look like. You don't need to see all the fine details, but you can see the red or the pink where he started and where he continued on foot and where he got to. Um, but I just think it's so, to me, interesting that even after three days, he's still not taking charge because he knows there's a more important task, and that task is first to get a lay of the land, to know what he's dealing with. Is that not wise and strategic? Um, before he can rally the troops, he really has to know the reality of the situation. He had never been to Jerusalem. He wasn't just going to trust what other people there told him about it. 
Because a lot of times if you've lived in a mess for a long time, you don't see it clearly. I mean, we all, yeah, we're, we all have houses like that or rooms like that. He wants to see it for himself um, because he knows, and I love this saying, he knows that the map is not the terrain, that the map is not the terrain. He wants to get the lay of the land firsthand, firsthand. And so I just find, feel like he's so strategic in how he goes about doing this. Um, he does not want to prematurely draw attention to himself. To, he doesn't want the people too roused up of what's going on. He doesn't want to, to, to get the attention of the enemy, which we saw at the end of the chapter there. So he goes by night. And this, this detail is so significant to him. He says night three times in verses 12 to 15. If you're like marking in the text, circle them. There's once at the beginning of verse 12, at the very beginning of verse 13, and then at the beginning of verse 15. He goes by night, and we're told that he just takes a select few because he's wanting to keep it quiet from, from everybody, what he's doing it. And then three times he tells us, not only three times at night, three times in 12 and 16 he tells us, I did not tell anyone, verse 16, the officials did not know, and then the last part of verse 16, I had no, I'd said nothing to the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or any others. So he's going at night. And he's, like, he's, he's keeping what he's thinking, he's not making it clear, or not sharing it with people at this point. And he doesn't take a bunch of horses or donkeys, because that'll create a lot of noise at night. He only takes one mount, and he's the one that's on it, because he's the guy that needs the view from a little up high to get a better picture of what, uh, what the situation is in the ground. And we're told in um, verse, I need to turn the page to that, in verse 15, Actually, not just 15. In 15, he talks about examining the wall, examining the wall. He goes to, to examine it. That Hebrew word is a, is a medical word that's used for the probing of a wound to see how bad the wound is and how to treat it. And so it's the idea of like deeply looking into something. He's really wanting to know what the condition of this is. He wants a handle on it. He wants to know the situation. He wants to know what it's going to take, the size and the scope of the project. The other thing I love about him, how strategic he is, is he wants to look at it from the outside. He wants to see it from the point of view of the enemy. Is that not cool? Um, and we're going to learn next week that his survey led to a plan, but we're going to save that for next week. So he's done the survey. He's done the examination. He's looked into it, and now it's time for him to move on with the project because he needs buy-in from everybody, and so it's time to speak to the people. And we see that in verses 17 and 18, 17 and 18. And I love his speech. He does um, four things with this that I think are really cool. First, he lays out the reality, the reality of the situation. Max Dupree has said the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. And that's what he does at the beginning of verse 17. He says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. So he just hits it on the nail on the head, right? He's direct. Um, he gave it to them straight. And yet, I find that he's so shrewd. There's really two important words in this speech that I want you to circle if you don't mind. The words we and us. Or maybe put a box around them because we're circling other stuff. Put a box. You see the word we twice in verse 17. The trouble we are in and we will no longer be in disgrace. And you see the word us once in verse 17. Let us rebuild the wall. And then if you drop down to verse 17, you're going to see each one more time. The God of heaven will give us success. 
And he says, we, his servants. And I think this is so brilliant because he's an outsider, right? But by him using this we, us language, he's, a, he's identifying himself with them and he's identifying himself personally with the need. He's not just playing the detached vis- official visitor who comes from out of town, but he's throwing his lot in with them and he's saying, look, we're all in this together. Second, he gives them the challenge. He gives them the challenge. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Third, he gives them the hope and the motivation. Then we will no longer be in disgrace. And I want you to know, this, we're going to talk about this in a minute in more detail, but this language is so strategically chosen. According to Psalm 48.2, Jerusalem was supposed to be beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. But instead, it had become a disgrace. Circle that word disgrace. It's really significant. It's a very important word in the prophecies of Isaiah. He uses the word disgrace 15 times in talking about the exile. And towards the end of the book of Isaiah, there are several texts that talk about God's going to reverse that disgrace. And I just want to show you one of them. It's Isaiah 61.7, where Isaiah is prophesying about the eventual return. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. So he's intentionally grounding um, all of this in God's redemptive purposes. They knew by using this language what he was referring to. And to me, it's his way of saying, guys, God is with us. The time has come. It is now that he is acting to fully restore us to the kind of place and people that he wants us to be. And then finally, he gives them evidence for this hope. So they know he's just not, you know, he's just not talking, but doesn't know what he's talking about. He says, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. Um, I love this. He recounts his story. He gives his testimony as that evidence. And, And I love that he keeps his priorities straight. He starts with God first, and then he gets to the king. So he says, the the gracious hand of my God, he is on me. He was on me, he is on me, and then what the king said. So in his speech, he's telling them, look, I want you to know, God moved in the life of Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes totally changed his opinion of this, that dictate that he had made we couldn't rebuild, totally changed his heart, and he has sent me to rebuild. And, and, and all of this, I just love how he keeps the focus off of himself. It's always shining the spotlight on God. And then their response, the end of verse 18, they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. His speech is infectious. It rallies the troops. They're rolling up their sleeves and they're ready to go to work. And they call it the good work. Isn't that cool? I underline that word good. The good work. That tells me they had total buy-in and they'd caught the vision. Dwight Eisenhower once said, leadership is the art of getting someone else to do something you want done because he or she wants to do it. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. But now the beginning of the storm. Remember we talked last week, he had the faith to enter the storm, here it comes. So verse 19, but, there's that word again, we saw it last week, double, circle that thing heavy, right? That's a, that's a big circle around that, heavy. But, when Sanballat the Horonite 
Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it. Stop there. Uh, no sooner had they decided to start the work and the opposition came. And I want you to know, these guys are going to dog Nehemiah the whole time of this project's going on until that final stone is placed, especially Sanballat and Tobiah. And I want to tell you briefly about these guys because we're going to meet them multiple times. Sanballat was Nehemiah's chief nemesis. Um, he was a native of Beth Haran, about 18 miles northwest of Jerusalem. His name is Babylonian, so he's likely not a Jew. Um, but his two sons had Jewish names, Hebrew names, so we think, scholars believe that probably he married a Jewish woman and had these sons. And other biblical documents tell us that he was actually, let me go past that to this, he was actually the governor of Samaria. Tobiah's name is Jewish, so he is a Jewish person, but he's an official in the government of Amman, which is across the river. Um, That's the country we now call Jordan, and the capital of Jordan is... Amman. So anytime you read Amman in the Bible, it's um, like Amman, Jordan. So that's what you think like when you're thinking of geography. The Ammonites were a tribe of people who descended from Lot, who was the nephew of Abraham. But they were the avowed enemies of the Jews. And we'll learn later in the book that Tobiah is probably the intelligence officer. He's the guy that has an inside track on what's going on in Jerusalem. And then there's Geshem, who was Arab. Um, As an Arab, he was descended from Abraham's son Ishmael. And he ruled a league of 10 Arabian tribes that had taken control of Moab and Edom. I've got Moab, and that Edom is like Edomia, same kind of, same root word. He had taken control of that with that league of 10 tribes. And historical records actually show us that of all these guys, he was probably the most powerful one. But he had the the least skin in this game. It's mainly Sanballat and Tobiah. And I mean, look at that map. Would you not feel... Um, squeezed in, or like you're surrounded by the enemy, would you not feel that way? I mean, that's exactly how they felt. So back to verse 19. So when these dudes heard about it, that's in the Hebrew, by the way. When these dudes heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? And they asked, are you rebelling against the king? In the words of Derek Kidner, the war of nerves has begun. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on their tactics because we're going to see them in the next few chapters, um, and we'll get into there. But what they're trying to do is plant seeds of doubt and especially of fear into them. That's what they're doing. And if there's anything that would make the Jewish people afraid, it is that Artaxerxes, who had already shut the rebuilding down one time previously, right? Their great fear would be if word gets back, we're rebelling, which is what caused it the first time, he's going to shut it down again. So they know exactly how to generate fear in them. But I love Nehemiah's response in verse 20. He says, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or any historic right to it. You got to love Nehemiah. He's not intimidated. He doesn't back down. It actually makes his resolve stronger, like we're going to do this. And he had bold words of his own. And he just makes in his reply three things that are really clear. First, he makes clear whose the work is. And he says in here, uh, because think, he could have brought the letters from the king. Could he have not held those up? Here's our authority, but he doesn't. His authority is he leans into God and he says, the God of heaven will give us success. This is his project. This is his battle. So first, whose the work is, and it's the Lord's. Second, who we are, the Jewish people. And he says, we're his servants. 
and we're going to start rebuilding. <laughs> Isn't that cool? I don't care what you say. We're going to do it. And then third, he says basically, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, who you're not. Who you're not. And he says to them, guys, you have no share in this place. You have no claim on this place. You have no historic right to this place. So just sit down and watch us go to work. He knew the opposition was coming, and he handled it well. Because he knew, in the words of Jesus, that God's kingdom would be built and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So I just love, I love Nehemiah and his example. Now, at the very beginning, um, I said that part of Nehemiah's genius, I find, is how wise and strategic he was. And as restorers, we need to be wise and strategic. We need to be wise. That's almost like a, uh, what do you call this, tongue twister? Wise and strategic too. Um, Say that five times fast. We need to be wise and strategic too. And I want to get really practical with this. So first, here's what I see. I see six things about Nehemiah of how he shows his wisdom and how strategic he is. Number one, first, restores like Nehemiah are patient. Uh, we saw this last week. You know, Samuel, as you were talking, I would, yeah, I was just thinking of this in your work. I mean, in all of our work, how much he waited prayerfully for four months, right, for God to, to prepare Artaxerxes' heart. We saw his patience there. We see his patience that when he shows up, he just doesn't dive in, but for three days he lays low. Then he goes out at night, kind of by himself with a few to get the lay of the land. So he's a patient guy. And I think you know this, but as restorers, this working with people, this working with souls, it takes time, right? We talked about that last week. It takes patience. It takes a lot of prayer and waiting. I know from my many years of experience that this working as a restorer, it is a marathon. It is not a sprint. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, Ellie McCrory, I just read an article this week. She ran her first big race. And the article, she talked about how her dad had helped her prepare for it, running hills and all of that. And when she got on the course, if I'm saying all this right, she, she got on that first hill and at first was kind of pushing it because she's really good at hills. But as she thought about it, I need, I'm in this for the long haul and she kind of backed off and set a better pace and ended up winning that thing. So congratulations on the race, Ellie. Because she knew it was a long race, Right? I mean, it's the same when you climb a 14er. And this year I did a longer one and greater elevation gain than I'd ever, than I'd ever done. And Kieran and I learned on our first one when like an 80-year-old woman passed us up, okay? And, and I said, ma'am, as she walked by, can you tell me your secret? And she says, I set a pace, I go slow, and I just keep going. And when I got on this particular one, I knew it was a lot longer. I had more elevation. I needed to be at the summit by 10. There was the danger of rain. You got to be off the summit. You got to really be into the trees again by, by noon. And so I got there really early. And the very beginning of it was really steep. And I felt that rush that I had to get there by 10. So I started going kind of fast. And I could feel myself getting tired. And I'm like, I've done this enough. I need to slow down. And so I slowed down, steadied my pace. In that first hour, because I started pretty early, one young guy and a young couple both passed me up, both going pretty fast. I passed the guy at 12,000 feet, and I passed the couple at 13,000 feet. I was the turtle. Uh, <laughs> trust me. Neither of, none of them made it to the top. 
Um, I will have to admit, when I got to about the last 500 feet, that was tough. A number of people passed me up there. I am 60, okay? <laughs> um, but as restore, we've got to be patient. We have to slow down. We have to pace ourselves, right, in what we're doing. So be patient. Second, restorers like Nehemiah work hard at developing trust. And he was a master at this, I feel like. First, he had earned the trust of the king. We saw that last week. It was hard-earned. Um, and that's why the king, part of the reason God, he was, humanly speaking, part of the reason he responded to him is because he had built a trust. And Nehemiah, when he got to Jerusalem, he needed to quickly develop the trust of the people and the way he handled himself, how slow he was, the, 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 seeing the lay of the land, developed trust with them, all of that, the way he handled it, built trust with them. And as restores, the same as with us, we need to build the trust of the people we're working with. In their book, I Once Was Lost, Don Everett's, talks about the need to cross five thresholds in bringing somebody to Jesus. And the first threshold, I don't know if you can see it, it's really small, is trust. It's the first threshold you've got to build. Um, I've said this many times, and this was kind of the basis when I think of evangelism, is people don't care what you know until they know that you, until they know that you care. They have to trust you. They have to know that you really care about them. They're not just an evangelistic project, but they're a, a person created in the image of God that you love and you're seeking to be a restorer in every area. It doesn't matter, right? It's not just I'm going after the soul, but I'm, I'm willing to go after the emotional and, the, and the, the relational to create an environment for what I'm doing, just like Brother Samuel's doing. I am willing to practically demonstrate God's love by meeting the real needs of people in all of those areas. And by that, that's how you build trust. And so he built trust. We need to do the same. And third, restores like Nehemiah, we need to get the lay of the land. We need to get the lay of the land. He did it for the city. We have to do it with the places and the people where we are seeking to restore. Remember, the map is not the terrain. The map is not the terrain. You cannot assume things about people. As a restore, you need to know the contours of a person's life and of their heart. So at the beginning stages of being restored, before you can be a spiritual guide leading somebody to Jesus, I want you to know you have to first see yourself as a spiritual explorer. First you're a spiritual explorer, just like Nehemiah. You have to get to know people, their likes, their dislikes. You have to know um, their dreams, their fears. You have to know the things that have influenced them. You have to know um, their wounds, their core beliefs and convictions. In other words, you have to get to know their story. And this morning, I want to give you a very powerful, practical, easy tool that all of us can use as restorers in the places where we are. It is a simple statement that is not hard to learn, okay, that you can make to anybody. And here it is. Hey, sometime I would really like to hear your story. Let's go get some coffee. I'd really love to hear your story. I do this with people all the time and to great effect. I just did it this past week with somebody that I thought I knew well and found out in hearing their story that their sister died when they were 13. And it changed how they looked at God. And I had not known that before. It was a key insight for me. A group has done research with this. And here's what they have found. Nearly 90% of people, if you ask, if you say to them, I would love to hear their story. Because how many of us, does anybody ever come to me and say, Garen, I'd just love to hear your story. I mean, nobody asks us that. About 90, 9 out of 10 people will say yes to that invitation. They'll say yes to that. And then you sit and you listen. And a lot of times, there will be a faith component to it. 
But maybe there isn't. And if there isn't, you can just ask a real simple question. Hey, I'm just curious. Is faith, does it have any part of your story? I'm just curious. And they may say no, they may say yes. But if you do it in the right way like that, it's not offensive. And here's what the research has also found. Here's the kicker. That if you do that with somebody, about 90% of the time, do you know what that person is going to say to you? I would love to hear your story. And then in telling your story, you have the chance to talk about Jesus and how your relationship with him and how he's changed your life. So I want to give you a challenge this morning, every one of us, in the places we inhabit and the people, the key ones on your list. By the end of October, I would like for you to say to one person on your list, I would love to hear your story. Let's go have lunch. Let's have coffee. Let's meet after work. But by the end of October, that all of us will have done that. Can you imagine not just the conversations that would generate, but the movement we would start seeing with people if we did that. I can't wait to hear the stories. Can't wait. Fourth, restores like Nehemiah are prepared. In everything, Nehemiah was prepared. I see that so much, and so must we. That's why Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks about the reason of the hope you have within you. Always be prepared. Once I've done some exploration, all right, I'm understanding a, heart, a person's heart. I'm kind of getting the train of who they are. Then I can do the work of preparation ahead of time before they even want to talk to me about Jesus. Let me give you an example. There's, I won't say who, but there's somebody in this body this morning who had a neighbor move in, somebody moving in their neighborhood who came from a different religious background. And they met them, and as soon as they found out they were from a di different religious background, and they knew the terrain... They came to me because I'd worked internationals and they said, do you have any good resources on that background so that if we come to the point of Jesus coming up, I'm prepared and know how to talk with them. And so I put something in their hand. And you can do that too. You can do that too. And fifth, restores like Nehemiah step into their Kairos moment. I spoke back on this June 18th in a lot of detail. So if you want to learn more about Kairos moment, like if you're new here since the summer, um, if you want to understand it more. But essentially, a Kairos moment is a God-given opportunity. And we saw last week that Nehemiah stepped into his Kairos moment with the king, right? All the king did is said, hey, you're looking kind of sad today. And that was the door for him to step into, to take the opportunity. Um, you remember I said last week, it, it's a quote from somebody else, but the large doors swing on small hinges. So you got to pay attention to the small things. So if somebody, and I've heard this from a number of you, somebody on your list, and then all of a sudden, within the first two weeks, they're asking you for lunch or coffee. That's a Kairos moment. That's from God. Step into it. If someone shares with you a struggle or a difficulty at work, that's a Kairos moment. Step into it. Say, can I pray for you about that? Again, the vast majority of people will say yes to that. And just pay attention to what people say. Listen to their words, because frequently you'll hear in a tone of voice that something is wrong. And like Artaxerxes said to him, you seem a little sad today, right? You can lead in with that. It just seems like something's not right. And a lot of times that will lead to them sharing something, unless he's a guy and he'll say, no, I'm fine. But it'll lead to some sharing, right? And, and then again, you can say, can I pray for you? And again, people will say yes. Um, you know, anytime somebody asks you a question or says anything related to faith, Sometimes that fear rises up like, oh, do I step into this? But do it. Um, it was almost two years ago. I was in Portland visiting Kieran. We were having 
We were eating at a restaurant. We had ordered our stuff. The appetizer came. He and I prayed. Portland's a very secular city. And when the waitress brought our food, she said, I, I saw you guys pray. She said, in all my years of doing this, I've never seen anybody pray before a meal like that. And she said, I just thought that was so cool. That ended up leading me after some conversations about her life. I couldn't get her whole story. That's not the right time. You know, have a seat and let, tell me your story. But, but she shared enough. She, had, she had, um, had a big change in her life, was going through some difficulty, and we prayed for her. I was able to get a gospel tract to her, and I was also able to recommend to her a church down the road that was close to where she lived. So we need to, we need to step into our Kairos moments. In Colossians 4, 3 to 5, Paul says, pray for us that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That's why I'm here in chains. Isn't that cool? That's why I'm where I'm at. It's for gospel opportunity. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should and make the most of every opportunity. So 12, let us pray for opportunities. Let us pray for Kairos moments. And when they come, step into it. And then finally, restores like Nehemiah, they're wise and they're strategic with their words. Nehemiah was so good at this. Um, This is in the early part of chapter 2. And I'm going to see how I can say this quick, okay? Um, Look at what he says in verses 3 and 5. I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then verse 5. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so they can rebuild it. I want you to know Nehemiah had given considerable thought to his words. It's really evident. First, he knew what not to say. Artaxerxes had had bad experiences with Jerusalem. Okay, That was not a good word for him. So look in verse 3. He never says the word Jerusalem. He says the city in verse 3, the city in verse 5. Circle those. He's intentionally not saying a word that's going to trigger him in a negative way. Isn't that cool? So he knows what not to say. But he also knows what to say. Um, He talks twice in here, in verse 3 and in verse 5. Underline these. Where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins. Where my ancestors are buried. So he knows what to say. Um, he is purposely targeting that message to a Persian psyche. Nehemiah knew that Middle Eastern kings had a great, just Middle Eastern people, but kings in particular, had a great sense of reverence for their ancestors, and they were very concerned about their burial and where they would be buried. This was really true of the Persians, history tells us. The Persian kings were obsessed with this. Um, That's the capital of Susa where Nehemiah had been. And you can still see the burial sites of some of these great Persian kings today near Persepolis. There carved into a mountainside is a row of elaborate tombs to four Persian kings, including Artaxerxes, the one with the arrow, and his father Xerxes. That's how important this was to them. Okay? So when he mentions the place where my ancestors are buried, he's tapping in to the, the compassion and, and the, the, like the value of him to get him to say yes. Isn't that cool? So he knows what not to say, he knows what to say, and he knows how to say it. He spoke to Artaxerxes with great respect. In verses 3, 4, and 7, you might want to underline these. In verse 3, may the king live forever. Verse 4, if it pleases the king. Verse 4, if your servant has found favor in his sight. 
let him send me. Verse 4. Verse 7, if it pleases the king, twice, may I have, may I have. So he knows how to speak to them. And it's the same with us. In our dealings with people's restorers, we need to be wise with our words. In the words of First Peter, when we speak and give an answer to somebody, we do so with gentleness and respect. And in the words of Paul, our conversation as restorers should be always full of grace and seasoned with salt, or as the NLT says, gracious and attractive. Isn't this book really practical? Isn't this practical? You know, like Nehemiah, we live as restorers, so let us be wise and strategic. Let us be patient. People who work really hard to build trust, who get the lay of the land, that we're prepared. We step into our Kairos moments and we're wise with our words. And I put those in a particular order because I just need to be patient with where I'm at. I'm working at building trust. I'm getting a lay of the land. I'm getting a feel for the people, their hearts, their lives, their stories. I'm prepared on how to maybe deal with each person based upon what I know. I'm praying for Kairos moments. I step in them when they come, and when I do, I'm wise with my words. So that's how we're to live as a restorer. And I'm just curious this morning, which of those did you most need to hear? Which of those did you most need to hear? So I'm curious, uh, and you know, if you flip to the back, if you got your book, to the, the next open, head, heart, hands, you know, right above it, Nehemiah 2, 1 to 20. What were the one, two, I don't know, most important things you learned? Like, wow, that, learning that helped me to understand Nehemiah or God or the situation a lot better. Most important thing you learned. We always want to go to the heart because God goes to the heart, right? He speaks to us through his word. What rings, what stings, what sings. So how did God speak to me? What one thing did I most need to hear today? What one thing did I most need to hear? And then finally, how am I going to apply that? How am I going to put that to use with my hands? Based upon what God was saying to me, what do I need to do this week to put that into practice? Somebody last week came to me afterwards and they said, this city is full of rubble. And they don't mean that literally. A lot of lives that are lost, that are broken, right? I mean, we all struggle with that because we're human. But there's a lot of people who are, their lives are in ruins. He said, this is so important that we be these kind of people. So 12th, let us seek to be restorers where we are. That's the challenge of this whole series, okay? Let us be shalom bringers. Let us be people who are repairers of the broken walls, restorers of the ruins. Let us be that kind of people.
all right? And to do that, we need to be people that are strategic and wise, just like Nehemiah. So let's take all of this to heart because we, we, want, we want to make impact. So that's the challenge. Would you stand with me? I'd like to end with a prayer. It's a prayer we prayed the very first week when we launched into this. And I'd love for you to join me in this. God of rescue and restoration, thank you for your great and beautiful mission in the world. I want to be a part of it. So here am I, Lord. I come before you with an open heart and with open hands. Use me, empower me with your spirit, and send me. And we all pray that in Jesus' name and say to that, amen. Let that be so. Let it be so. So, Father, make us these kind of people. We want to be restorers. You've put us in the places we are and the relationships are around to do that. And it needs so much wisdom. And we just, I just pray you'd make us wise and strategic people in how we approach that task. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this book and how it speaks to us. And I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, 12th. Got a big task to do, so you are sent.